Good morning, and uh, thanks to Aid for that amazing introduction. Um, I'll, I'll say thank you and pass the encouragement elsewhere. And uh, I think from the moment we met, I knew he was a man I had to look up to. Uh, but from the moment I met, we were brought together legally in that uh, the Baptist Union, as you know, always gives uh, a new minister a mentor. And uh, uh, I was given as aid. He didn't have any choice in the matter. But I think that we soon put the legal bit aside. And uh, I've mentored many people, but you've been one of the easiest. So far, so far. <laughs> So uh, I thank the Lord. Let's open the Bible, and uh, we're going to read from the book of Ruth. And uh, Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon, Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha, the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And may the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye. And they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still time for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. 
Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And we should add, to be continued. (laughs) May the Lord open our eyes to his word. Uh, Hands up if you've got visitors coming for Christmas. Oh yes, enough, enough. We've got visitors coming for Christmas, and uh, this didn't happen to us, but it happened to someone. Um, The family were expecting some fairly important visitors, and the mother decided the only way to keep her unruly family in order was in the days leading up to the arrival of the guests to put notices up all around the house, you know, keep this house tidy. And um, she put one in the bathroom, but unfortunately forgot to take it down. So the first time the honoured guests went into the bathroom, they were met with this sign which said, if you use these towels, I will kill you. (laughs) Well, we stayed with our family in Oxfordshire last weekend, and uh, thankfully uh, there were no notices around. We were on our way to a a family funeral, and um, it was a lovely get-together for my aunt, um, who was 96, the youngest of nine children. My mum was number five. And so it was really the last of a dynasty. And as we sat down together as uh, siblings and cousins, uh, we really began to reminisce about the family tree. And like most families, our family tree is full of surprises. And it's true of your family, and it's true of the family tree of Jesus. In the family tree of Jesus in Matthew 1, there's a lying husband who tried to pass his wife off as his sister in order to save his neck. Uh, There's the head of the royal family who commits adultery and then arranges for the husband of the woman he had slept with to be bumped off. And then there's the immigrant woman from a foreign country who comes from a pagan background and marries into a family that believes in a God she's never heard of. And she's so important a relative of Jesus that she has a whole book of the Old Testament devoted to her life story. And you'll know one of the traditions of the Advent season for Christians is to read the Old Testament. It's part of the way in which we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. So we're going to look at this story of Ruth, which I know many of you know very well. You'll know how the book opens with those words, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. When the judges ruled in Israel, at the time this book of Ruth uh, we're looking at is uh, there, it's not unlike our own day. There was political chaos in the land. If you've got your Bibles open, look to the last verse of the previous book. Judges 21, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there was a me first generation before 2019. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. There was not only political chaos, but there was moral decay. We won't look at it now, but that terrible story in Judges 19, 
which give you a glimpse into the low life of the nation. It's a familiar story, then and now, of binge drinking, gang rape, and the death of a young woman. And the male relative of the woman who had been raped and died was so distraught, he cut her body into 12 pieces and sent them to all parts of the nation, north, south, east, and west. And it shocked the nation so that people said, Judges 19, verse 30, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. Uh, I can't imagine that as a week goes by that we don't have it. It's true this week, somebody appearing in front of a camera saying, we've never seen this before. Again and again and again. Political chaos, moral chaos, and economic hardship. There was a famine in the land. Uh, because of the uncertain rainfall in Palestine, there were always droughts and there were always famines, but this was a big famine. And remember, this is Bethlehem, the meaning of the word house of bread. And uh, it not only provided enough food for people in Bethlehem, but it was a major center for people coming in from all over that region to collect and buy their bread. So if there was a famine in the house of bread, it was a critical time in the life of the nation. So with just a, a few words, the writer has described living in Bethlehem, political chaos, moral decay, economic hardship. But like any good documentary, the writer decides to tell the story of what's happening in the nation through one family. That's good filming, really, to do it that way. And it homes in on this family. The head of the family is a man called Elimelech, his wife Naomi, the name means pleasant, and their two sons, Marlon and Kilion. Uh, they moved to Moab, uh, and I hadn't spotted this for um, however well I know the book of Ruth. I looked at it, and, and it just says for a little while. If you look at your Bible, it indicates the family were talking about a temporary move. It's as if you might go from Totnes to Tunbridge Wells because there's better job prospects in that part of the world. It wasn't permanent, but the place they chose, Moab. And if you dig deeper into the names, you'll realize that what the writer is telling you is this. The move of this family was a big error of judgment. There are many things that we do in life, and a house move and a location move is one of them. And this was a failure to trust God in a time of crisis. The very name Elimelech means, my God is the king. The man's family had a rich heritage of trusting God. They were believers. In those verses, it uses the word Ephrathites. Some suggest this is a title for a sort of spiritual aristocracy in Bethlehem. These just weren't any other people in Bethlehem. They were of a great tradition. So Elimelech should have known from his spiritual background, as we should, that when times are tough, you don't walk away, you stay where you are. And you trust God to perform miracles in difficult places. But they trusted not in God, but they relied. Proverbs 3 says, don't rely on their own understanding. And they did. They relied on their own understanding of all the places they chose. They chose the country of Moab. It was renowned. It was a center for dark pagan religion. The Moabites sacrificed children to appease the gods they worshipped, and they'd been the fierce enemies of Israel for 18 years. 
there must have been a period of peace, otherwise Elimelech and the family wouldn't have gone. But it was the last place on earth you would expect a spiritually-minded believer to move home. So within a period of time, tragedy strikes the family. And we can read how Elimelech dies, then his wife is left as a widow with two sons. They marry two local boys, and after ten years, the boys die. So you now have three widows living under one roof, and it's a house of deep sadness. And with wonderful skill, the writer turns his attention to the relationship between the mother-in-law, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law. Uh, Louis Palau, some of you may know uh, that name, um, world-famous evangelist. He was 85 last month. He's been battling cancer, born in Argentina, now lives in Oregon, USA. Wonderful communicator of the gospel. And a few years ago, um, I was sharing a conference with him at uh, Keswick in the Lake District. And knowing what a great sense of humor he had and what a world traveler he was, I just said to him, uh, Louis, is there any... Um, story, any joke that goes down well everywhere in the world. He had been to about 70 countries at that time. And without hesitation, he said, mother-in-law jokes. <laughs> he said, I've only got to say to an audience, whatever the culture, I'm having problems with my mother-in-law and the whole place erupts in laughter. Well, as it's Advent, I'm not going to make any mother-in-law jokes this morning. I want instead to present you, thank you. Instead, I want to present to you an amazing woman, mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, the more you look at this woman, you just realize what a stunning uh, person she was. She was a caring woman. She had kept in touch with the place that she had left, Bethlehem. So it can't have been a blessing to her to hear the news that life had returned to normal. It says that God had come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem by providing food for them. Once again, Bethlehem was the house of bread. This was going to be part of her struggle with God. And if I was part of the family, I would ask the same question that Naomi was probably asking. Why on earth did we ever leave Bethlehem in the first place? And she reveals her caring nature in verse 8. She says to her two daughters-in-law, I don't expect you to come back with me to Bethlehem. You need to stay here in your home country among the people of your own culture and I'll make this journey alone. Go back home and live with your mothers. But she was a spiritual woman and from a broken heart she was able to bless her two daughters-in-law. Verses 8 and 9, may God be kind to you just as he's been kind to me and my dead sons. I hope you both find husbands. It was a big thing for her to say this because they were providing comfort for her. They were providing friendship for a widow. So I think she was a, a caring woman and a spiritual woman. And you've already picked it up when we heard the, the, re the reading read to us. She was humorous. You see a glimpse of that in verse 11. You know, when they say, we're going to stay with you. And she says, are you girls expecting me to produce two more sons even if I married tonight and conceived and gave birth, you'd have to wait for years until these two boys were grown up. And she might have added, what happens if you wait and you don't like either of my boys? <laughs> but then we see this fourth aspect of her personality in verse 18, 13. She was transparently honest 
about everything that had happened. And she says, and it's there in the record, as I reflect on all that's happened to me over the past few years, I've come to this conclusion. The Lord's hand has gone against me. God doesn't like me. These are very bitter days that I'm passing through. It's a very um, sober experience to witness the raw anger of a believer who feels that God has let them down. Because when people are passing through a difficult experience of life and they're believers, they often turn on people. I, I recall a church meeting where a normally um, quiet, peaceful, calm woman let rip with a volley of abuse against me personally as the pastor as well as the church. Um, when I was ministering in Torquay in the 80s, uh, one of my uh, elders in the team there was a man called John Hutchison. Some of you may know John if you've been around a while. And he used to pass on all sorts of wisdom to me as a young pastor. And one of them was, remember, David, sometimes people need a lightning rod, uh, a human lightning rod, to express just how angry they feel against God. And therefore, they visit their anger on you when really they're wanting to visit on somebody they can't see. Well, that happened in our church meeting. And one of the elders joined me, and we went round straight after the church meeting uh, to visit this very angry lady and discovered there was an angry husband as well. And we listened to their story. Uh, they didn't use these words, but they were going through a very bitter time. And they felt deeply disappointed in the church and the leadership. And behind it all was a deep disappointment in God. Because like Naomi, they were spiritual people. And somehow we do log in our minds, don't we? If I walk with the Lord in the light of his word, then uh, big disappointments and terrible bitterness never visits me. Well, we know that the Bible never promises that. We looked at some of the Psalms. Jan and I at the moment are going through the Psalms with Ian Stackhouse's great book. If you haven't come across it, there's a plug for you, Pam and Ian, Roy. And it's amazing how the psalmist is just like Naomi, deeply honest, and, and uses phrases implying, are you deaf, God? Why don't you hear me, Lord? I'm in this mess. Why is it wicked people are prospering and good people like me are suffering? So over a couple of hours probably, we didn't resolve the key issue, but we did gain some perspective. We talked, we prayed, tears flowed, hugs were exchanged, and uh, I think we began to move on. But the problem was they hadn't told the family dog. They hadn't told the family dog they'd made peace with the pastor. So as I came to leave by the front door <laughs> where I'd left my briefcase, the dog had taken a huge chunk out of my briefcase. He had obviously overheard the angry chaos emerging from the front room and thought he would encourage with his support. And um, that couple are part of the Naomi clan, feeling bitter towards God, saying publicly, it's been wonderful prayers of praise here this morning, but fellowship, there are times when we don't offer prayers publicly 
And sometimes they're the real heart prayers, aren't they? Our danger, you see, is when we're bitter with God. Listen, we think we're a rubbish believer because of our bitterness with the Almighty, and therefore we've, we've been sidelined. And we somehow feel that if we can come through this season of stormy bitterness, pain, and disappointment, then at some point in the future, he'll pick us up and put us back in the place of ministry. Well, the Naomi story isn't like that. The Naomi story is about somebody who, in the depths of their bitterness towards God and disappointment with life, there is a glow about them that God is using. Look at where this moment in the story from verse 14. She's decided to return to Bethlehem. Uh, One daughter-in-law decides to stay. The other one clings to her. And I think from verse 16, if you've never read this before, first time maybe, this is one of the most lyrically moving speeches in the whole of the Bible. Ruth has lost her husband, so she knows what it is to grieve She understands why Naomi's heart has been broken in pieces three times. And Ruth has heard Naomi pour out her bitter disappointment with the Almighty. And this is response, Ruth's response to what she's seen in Naomi's life. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. There's Naomi thinking, what kind of advert am I for the Almighty? And here's Ruth saying, what I've seen in you, I want. Never ever allow your bitterness and disappointment to make you feel I'm a rubbish believer that God could never use. Here's the truth. Even when you think you're a rubbish believer because you're bitter, God is doing far more using the brokenness of your bitter life. You see, Ruth has glimpsed in the rawness of Naomi's grief something deep. We can even say something golden. It's a tried faith. And Ruth is attracted to that. The two widows return to Bethlehem and when they arrive, friends and neighbors say, can this be Naomi? Remember, the name means pleasant. You see, the years of sadness and grief and worry and anxiety have not been kind to Naomi. Her physical appearance has changed. Can this be the same pleasant Naomi? And Naomi Uh, replies in verses 21 and 22, don't call me Naomi, I'm changing my name to Mara, which means I'm a bitter woman. There's a play on words here. Call me Mara because God has marred my life. I'm bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full and I've come back empty. The Lord has afflicted me and the Almighty has brought me misfortune. So please don't call me Naomi. My name is Mara. And this very honesty is what is luring Ruth from a pagan background into a walk with the living God. What's interesting is the Hebrew name Naomi uses for God. The usual 
name, the personal name throughout the Old Testament is the name Yahweh. That's a very intimate word. It's the covenant language. But she doesn't use that word. She uses the word El Shaddai. Almighty in our English version here. El Shaddai, the Almighty One, has brought me misfortune. It means rock-like strength and stability. El Shaddai, the Almighty One, is the one who can triumph over every rock and obstacle that stands in our way. And Naomi, it's as if she's saying to El Shaddai, the Almighty One, I'm not going to hold anything back from you, El Shaddai, because I believe you're strong enough to take my pain and my bitterness, and I'm going to offload all that bitterness on you. Naomi takes the burden of her pain and sadness, and she lays it before the Lord who she believes is strong enough to bear her burdens. The loss of husband and two sons, the mystery as to why all this has happened to her, and the question, why did we leave Bethlehem? She lays down at his feet her deep disappointment with God, doesn't deny the conviction of her heart, the Lord has brought misfortune and sadness into my life, but I'm just laying that down at the feet of you, El Shaddai, Almighty One. My uh, experience as a pastor tells me that uh, Naomi and Ruth are always present in a congregation like this. And whatever their male equivalents are, Naomi, Nathan, hanging on by their spiritual fingernails, deeply disappointed with God. I often feel that some folk turn up because if you don't turn up, pastor or somebody will come knocking saying where have you been so you turn up because it's less hassle but by turning up and feeling inwardly this rubbish Christian bit and that's what I love about the grace of God's word here this caring spiritual humorous transparently honest woman casting all her burdens on El Shaddai unbeknown to her her light has been shining more brightly than she realized And here's Ruth. What can we learn about Ruth and the male equivalent of Ruth? She's had none of the advantages of a long spiritual heritage. We've had some, uh, we've heard about your wonderful Alpha experiences down at Bridgetown. And we've just had the conclusion of um, some wonderful Alphas this year. And I'm in a micro group with three guys and myself. One of them has got a Catholic background and The other one doesn't have any background. And when I chatted to him after the service last Sunday, he was more or less saying a bit like Ruth, I have no background to call upon. The Catholic did. Uh, If you strip away some of the, uh, you know, things that he had been brought up as an Irish Catholic, he he still realized that at the heart of it all, the Christian message had shone through. But this other guy, none of that. Ruth is like that. Brought up as a pagan, no knowledge of the living God. And what she was doing for a season is she was living on a borrowed faith. She was close enough to Naomi to live off Naomi's faith. And she's come to the realization that she's got to break free. She'll always have her as a friend and mother-in-law. But she needs to step aside and say, I want your God to be my personal God. 
I want the people that you belong to in your eternity. I want them to be my people. That's where my mates arrived. Married to a Christian woman, uh, if you like in the early days, living off her faith. He now wants to break free, not from her, but from her faith. He doesn't want to have a borrowed faith. And you may be there this morning. Advent is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and into the human heart. Your heart, your life, right now, today. I was uh, privileged to shake Aid's hand on the day he graduated from Spurgeon's College. I had to check which year it was. It was 2014. And uh, I was part of the governors of Spurgeon's at that time, and uh, it was great. We didn't know each other as well as we know each other now. But Aid will know that if you stand at the back of Spurgeon's College Chapel, you'll find it through Google Images. Uh, as you stand at the back of the chapel, there on the wall facing you is this beautiful gold-colored cross. And it's lit, uh, floodlit from both sides. It, it dominates the whole chapel as soon as you enter. But if you walk up to the cross and stand very close in front of this gold-colored cross, you realize it's embroidered. Something you cannot see from the back, but the nearer you get to the cross, you can see there's writing on it. And it includes words from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our sins. Our sins were laid on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's only by drawing nearer to the cross of Jesus that you understand just how much Jesus Christ loves you. And he loves you, Naomi. And he loves you, Ruth. And he wants you in a fresh way this Advent season to experience again what it is to be ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. I want you to uh, go home and do some homework this afternoon. If you've never read uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth, we've read chapter one. Go home and read chapters two, three, and four. You'll do it in 15 minutes. And be transformed as you read what happened to these two women. The fingerprints of God. God's name is not mentioned that much, but his fingerprints are everywhere in the story. They discover a relative called Boaz, who's a very wealthy man. And you had a wedding here yesterday. Well, romance is alive and well in this story. Boaz loves Ruth. They marry. They have a son called Obed. They then have a grandson called Jesse. They then have a great-grandson called David. Not any David, but King David, who has a town named after him. It's called Bethlehem. How amazing is that? We've already sung, and we will be hearing the words, the words of the angels to the shepherds. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Who would have believed that by a family's mistake of moving from here to here and a bitter woman and a pagan woman and all that story of Naomi and Ruth, who would believe that they would find themselves in the family tree of Jesus? Amazing. And God's got his fingerprints all over your life. And just when you feel, how can all this bitterness 
out of the ashes. How can any good come? This is what the New Testament says. God, the El Shaddai, is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. I would love that to happen in your life today. I'm going to ask the band to come back. And I want to uh, pray for you. When I was talking with Fee just before the uh, service, uh, she told me the songs that she'd already chosen. And uh, they're perfect. The songs you're now going to sing, they're perfect. Because they just tie in with what God has been saying to us through his word. Pray with me. One of the lines of the song we're now going to sing says this. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the depths? The bitter depths that you find yourself in right now this morning? Do you really believe in abounding grace? Your grace, Lord, can abound in the deepest waters as you did in the life of Naomi. So we call upon you, El Shaddai, the Almighty One. Give us the faith to believe that we can lay down at your cross this morning every single burden. Deliver us from that self-improvement which believes, well, when this passes, when I feel better, then I'll begin to serve again. You know that Jesus specializes in unmessing messes. And he's drawing you to himself this morning.